0: from wbz chicago and the lingering shadows this is pleasure town around the turn of the last century a group of folk built their dream a town where happiness was the main objective but as history has shown death catches up to everyone so take a closer look and join us as we illuminate pleasure town You know, Sy, si, us ghosts get a bad rap.
1: We are a misunderstood bunch. the people think we run around in bedsheets or we're lingering just to get a scare or two.
0: Seems like every malign group has its own movement. Maybe we should have ours. A ghost pride parade or something.
1: I have a feeling there'd be a noticeable lack of attendance.
0: I guess that's one of the drawbacks of being invisible.
1: I was referring to how people don't seem to carry the dead around much anymore. We pass and they forget.
0: Probably because there's a benefit to forgetting. benefit not afforded to the dead.
1: I didn't frequent Pleasure Town's bars as much as you did, Claude.
0: Not many did. I was as much a staple as a spittoon.
1: But from what I did see, I had a kindred spirit behind the bar. That man's visage always spoke of the crushing weight of torment.
2: Time had passed. A long spell of time, in fact. The better part of two decades. The years had not been kind to either of us, I guess. She had a hard and parsimonious face, a wind-burned face with a downturned mouth, the scowling and flinty face of a woman who didn't much care for the lot that life had handed her and saw little reason to hope for anything better. I knew her right away, of course. I had not laid eyes on her since before the day I fired a slug from a cold peacemaker into her husband, killing him. But when she walked into my bar, I knew just who she was. And I further knew that she knew just who I was. I cannot now recall his name, the husband, Jansen, maybe, or Johansen. He has lived in my mind these years only as the Swede. Thin as a rake handle he was, and tight-lipped as a clam. The Swede was a fool with no head for business, running his dry goods store into the ground, so he borrowed money from the wrong people and could not pay. His creditors hired me to take his life in trade. This had been my line of work for a long while and took me all over the West and parts of Mexico. And if I'm honest, most of the 31 men I killed failed to leave much of an impression on me. Not so the Swede. I've watched men die, near 50, I think. But the Swede was the only man who spoke not a word and made no outcry as he breathed his last. As the blood poured forth from him, he looked at me and slid to the floor. There was no breeze through there, so the smoke from that gunshot hung between us without stirring. I had seen the Swede's wife only the one time, "'when I'd stopped into a shop a few days before I came back to kill him. "'I was careful and thorough in my work, "'so wherever possible I would get the layout of a place before shooting a man. "'She had been there rolling out a length of muslin for a customer "'and measuring it to their satisfaction before going to work with her shears. "'Even then she had not been young. "'There are certain folks who seem never to have had the lightness of youth.' She was one of these. She seemed, even then, to be bowed by time and burdened by it. But she and her husband were of Scandinavian stock, and I have observed these to be a mirthless and uneasy bunch, mostly. Back on that day, when she'd been cutting that muslin, I reckoned her to be a severe and forbidding woman and wondered if maybe I wasn't doing the Swede a favor by getting him out of that marriage when I did. So, when she sidled inside the bar, she was skittish and unsettled with the fixed gaze of a spooked bird, unaccustomed to the smoke and chatter of saloons, a person of rectitude and temperance, a joyless churchgoer, Certain only that most of us are bound for perdition. She edged her way over the sawdusted planks and approached the bar. She wore traveling clothes, a high necked dress, a sensible coat. The dust of long and rutted roads had worked its way into her creases, though, so she did not fully convey the air of respectability, probably, that she wished to. It had cost her no small effort to make her way here to my bar, though, so her presence nonetheless carried with it a sense of occasion. I had a rueful laugh to myself, that it would be a woman who would come to finish me. After all these years of keeping a wary watch for sons or brothers of all the men I'd killed, here apparently it was to be a wife who would end it. I wondered idly if it would be a blade or the dainty bullet of a little pearl-handled lady gun. Either way, I'd be bleeding for a long spell and would have adequate time to reflect on my misspent life. Well, I thought, at least my waiting is over. I produced a rag and wiped at the patch of bar where she stood making circles of the whiskey spill and tobacco juice. She looked at me, dry-eyed. I waited for her to speak, to accuse me, to curse. She said nothing, met my eyes with a level gaze. Don't know how to say it quite. There was no challenge in her weary gray eyes, nor any appraisal even. She stared at me the way a person surveys wreckage, just blinking at the splintered remains of a collapsed house, say, or a tornado-blasted barn. In her long, long regard of me, I do not believe I detected any bitterness or fear, no hatred or pity even. I, to her, was a thing she needed to see, A thing to witness. I waited still for her to speak. Most men, I think, would avoid that gaze. I did not. I knew what I had done. I had prepared myself for near thirty years to meet just such a gaze from somebody I'd bereaved. So it was here the moment I'd been bracing for, the moment that had occupied my thoughts every day since the last time i pulled a trigger to slay a man. I had pictured it thousands of times, this last encounter I'd ever have, my overdue demise, the vengeance of the blade, the retribution of the gun. I had resolved long ago, "'that I would make no move to stop it, "'had chosen just to wait with eyes open and mouth shut. "'Now that it was upon me, though, this moment, "'I noted I had a restlessness in me, "'an itching, you might say. "'She was a hard-faced woman with hands knotty from work, And I knew some of that hardness, some of that weariness had been given her by me when I killed the Swede. And I knew, even though my years of mayhem were behind me, that I could drop her with a fast right to the jaw. But the fact that I could drop her did not mean that I would. I laid both my hands flat on the bar and pressed them into the warping wood. And waited. She blinked at me. She waited, too, seemed like. Finally, I spoke. What'll it be? I said. She thought for a second or so. Then her cracked lips parted, and she said, Would you have a cold birch beer? We both of us had the croaking voices of people who almost never speak. No, ma'am, I said. If you don't wish for strong spirits or beer, there's a bottle or two of sarsaparilla. We have no ice, though, so it won't be cold, I'm afraid. I fetched her drink. She took a long slug of it, still peering at me. You're just passing through, then? I asked her. She considered this, sipped again. I wanted for her to smash the bottle into my face to grind the shards into my eyes I was tempted to lay my hand on the sawed-off under the bar and place it before her I wanted her to pull a buck knife from her boot and plunge it in my throat to produce a pearl-handled lady pistol from her bag and fire a small caliber slug into my gut where it would ricochet around under my ribs and tear me up Yes, she said finally. That's a shame, I said. This is a pleasant little town. I have little doubt, she said, and drained the bottle. She fished a coin out of her purse. I tried to refuse it, but she pressed it onto the bar and looked at me one final time. She nodded and was gone. Pleasure
1: Town will return in
2: a moment.
0: Some of Pleasure Town's greatest stories are best told by those who never set foot in our settlement.
1: But to be among us, their lives had to have intertwined with ours.
0: That's true. In some cases, so did their deaths.
3: was, I wouldn't tell you my real name. That would have spilled the wine still aging in its cask. Names have power, and power can be given or taken where it can be found. So it is best to have many names, and not keep all of oneself in any one place." Where I am now, though, earthly names cannot hardly reach me. So, what is all that worth? I can tell you that the face you might know me by, if you knew me, was called Warren Featherbone, and that I was the third in a line of Warren Featherbones, and that though I fathered no children, I was not the last to wear that name. It passed from me to another all in one night. I'd gone to a funeral parlor to the wake of my father's old associate, Mr. Crenshaw, to pay my respects. And what a fool I was. That old fellow had passed through such struggles only to succumb to the illness of age and end up wearing his best suit inside a box On ice. They'd set coins on his eyes. A waste of money, I thought. And played him a dirge on a fiddle. Strange things, sympathies. I thought fondly of Mr. Crenshaw in life, but had hardly thought about him in the past decade. He was a good fellow, or good enough, but of simple tastes. It was inevitable that he'd die... Like everyone else. We praise some dead folk we wouldn't tip our hats to on the street. We value them more gone than we do alive. This is why I am still hated by some. I am mistaken for the living. For one still among you. Because my face has been stolen. And my name... I was a whole being, 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 broken broken apart into pieces. pieces. (laughs) Whatever remains without a face, a name, a body, is what I have now, for now. It happened that though I did not know it, I was through with that body, not by my choice but by my loss, as all loss is not by choice, else it is but a divestment. My loss was not fate, but malice inflicted. It occurred to me that would be my end, but of course I didn't anticipate the when or the where. If it had, I would have pursued my treasures in a different order. Throughout time, a great many men have sought out Philosopher's Stones as a means to enhance and extend their power, but i thought a philosopher's stone to be gross and blunt powerful for sure but unimaginative a true specimen turns lead into gold and grants eternal life making the poorest substance precious making the mortal eternal making worthy the worthless but what value does it have to one who is already rich already potent wealth, and life. But that is all. We have so much more to aspire to than those old chestnuts. My collection, distant from me now and honestly regarded from afar, was a display of vice. Nothing as crass as my pen pal Crowley's, for my vice was pride. Stubborn pride. And I believed not only that my occult treasures took on value through their proximity to each other and to me but that I had time to expand my collection to include the artifacts of my friendly enemies because I was rich because I had power I made no hurry to get myself a piece of such obvious alchemy as a philosopher's stone and that proves my foolery Even I was vulnerable to bloody, earthly murder. Like everyone who's been murdered, I was in the middle of something. Many somethings. Treasures from every land. I might have guessed the one that would be my undoing would be that Sintamani stone. The Sintamani stone was a gem of profound power, capable of manifesting on earth the wishes and dreams of the humble and the powerful alike. Wealth, power, immortality, certainly, but more than that, even a fragment of the true stone would have been limited only by earthly imaginations, by the wishes of humanity limited by the needs and fetters of earthly life. I thought myself educated beyond such elements. Some say the sintamani and its fragments are as blue as the air, turned blue perhaps when the stone fell to this earth, like a piece of possibility or a bit of the sky. Beautiful, I'm told, for I had gone to much trouble to get a fragment for myself, all but forgotten by history and exported at great costs to my part of the globe. And yet I have never seen this treasure, It was bound for me by ship and by train, yet it never arrived. By chance or by fate, this treasure was lost to mortal interventions. Hidden away in the lining of a coat, I imagined some bandit admiring the coat for its cut and fabric, not knowing the true treasure within. Follies of earthly life, At the time, I did not know all that would foreshadow my demise. I didn't know when I laid eyes on the young lady at the wake that the flush of blood in my body could be read as a warning. Her gaze, her eyes, her smile. And then she was gone into the somber crowd. I saw her again that very evening, In my home Singing in my bedroom I didn't know her voice Didn't find it familiar But I knew her song And knew it was not her own But Aphrodite's I should have known not to trust the allure of such a song She was half-dressed in my bedroom A plain skirt hung from her hips and a corset squeezed her ribs and bosom. I recognized that garment as I had the song. It, too, had carried Aphrodite's name, now and again. Her breath, wrapped in that corset, came to me as an ensnaring song. The song of a siren is insidious, of course, I stepped into the room. Its beautiful treachery isn't any compulsion of the limbs, I assure you. I stepped onto the Persian rug I'd bought in Baghdad. The masterful music sways from within, from the mind, like an audible drug making one, me, believe it is our idea, even a good idea, to play along. I passed myself in my dressing mirror. In my case, it occurred to me that I would play along until I could outsmart this temptress, both knowing and not knowing that was folly. I stood next to my bed and felt my heartbeat when she smiled, ever singing. She padded the bed next to her, and like a fool, I sat with her, saying almost in song, My dear... I don't know what you want, but I may not be the man you take me for. That was when her father stepped in with a pepper box pistol in his casual grip. I did not know him then, but he was the unfortunate Alvin Pilfer, a fellow I wouldn't want to know in life and I am sorry to know now. We know what we need to know, and we'll take what we want to take. I stood up straight and moved to protest, to scold this fellow. I imagined we were closing in on the climax of my life and I took a breath to speak my final words, but he pried the trigger at once and put me down in a flurry of smoke and shot. I crumbled onto the floor. With my chin to my chest, I looked past my tattered shirt, already soaking up blood, at the man who became become my killer. He put a finger behind his ear.
0: I'm sorry, Mr. Featherbone. Were you about to say something?
3: Hardly able to breathe, even slowly, I laid my head back on the floor beneath me. I managed to get out. He came forward, straddled my torso, put his hands to my bloody chest and licked clean a red-stained finger. He leaned deep on my ribs, pressing the breath out of me. His nostrils flared and he breathed in as I exhaled, breathing in my essence. But with the last exhalation I also gave my killer my curse. His accomplice stood and headed to him, saying,
4: Well then, I guess we're done here, eh, Alvin?
3: Don't call
0: me that! Let this be the last time you call me that!
3: After all, tonight, tonight I am a new man. I am Warren Featherbone the Third. My final meager prize in life was seeing the look on Alvin Pilfer's face as it became mine, and as he felt his chest split raw where mine would have been scarred if I had lived. That was the moment that I expired. Enough has been written and said about the passages out of life, I'm sure. The learned, I can tell you, won't find it surprising. Do your reading. Suffice to say, as I entered the thundering winds coming across the plains of death, I heard Alvin Pilfer feel some measure of pain. Does it hurt? Yes, it hurts. Looks almost healed already. Uh, Give me a minute. Uh, uh, uh. It's hardly a wound. Uh, More the memory of one. It's a small price to pay, I suppose, to get the stone Now that poppet wears my shoes, my face, and my name. So, too, does he wear the scars of my death, as they were as much me at that moment as any green eye or mustache. His accomplice, a poppet's poppet, wears my treasures and spends my dignity, unspooling my legacy like a cable from the coil but even my cachet cannot last them forever. The last I could bear to hear them say that night, as this nameless part of me flitted into the storm clouds above, told me where to turn my new gaze. No sense in stalling here. I'll heal up and get affairs in order. You hurry along to Pleasure Town.
4: Sure shall, Daddy. I mean... Mr. Featherbone.
3: So yes, pilfers, say my name. It has powers, but you have stolen only a fraction of them. We are linked while you wear my face, and that gives me some power over you. And I know your names now. I am too weak to wield my power, but it exists and all that can keep me from strangling you with power is the chance that someone else will first. Taste the pomegranates of hell, drink the waters of Acheron, and then you cannot ever leave those lands, even if you cross their borders. I've sipped from the sticks and I have gorged at the feasts of the world, and I do not expect I'll ever be free of any place that has held me, nor shall any place be free of me once I have laid my hand upon it. You have taken on my appearance and demeanor to take on my power, but to do that you had to break me, and so you may have taken on my faults as well. You have stolen the guise of a man powerful, Tis true, but a man you also know can be killed. And so it is with this hidden breath and wicked word that I do curse you and your daughter to know within that which you have wrought without destruction and our sympathies.
1: Pleasure Town will return in a moment. What would you wear? To what? The Ghost Pride Parade. Spurs. And? That's it.
0: Nothing but spurs.
1: I'm not sure that'd get the best reaction.
0: It's not like they'd see anything anyway. But frankly, it's their loss. <sighs>
4: Pleasure Town listeners, this is Emily Modaf, associate producer of Pleasure Town. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our past episodes, leave us a rate and review on iTunes. As always, it's time to thank the amazing crew that made this episode possible. This episode of Pleasure Town was written by Will Hindmarch and Ian Belknap and performed by Ian Belknap, Trevor Dawkins, and Michaela Petro. Our executive producers are Keith Ecker and Aaron Cahoe. Our associate producer is me, Emily Modaf, And our wonderful interns are Brady Guy, Lizzie Seidenstricker, Colin Wright, and Joe Courtney, a fellow I wouldn't want to know in life and am sorry to know now. Editorial oversight by Joe Dassault with help from Colleen Pellissier and Brad Helm. Original music was composed and performed by River Rising's Megan Diger and Tim Hazen and engineered by Colin Ashmead-Bobbitt. Pleasure Town is an ever-growing interactive narrative which relies on your creativity, your imagination, and especially your voice to expand the legend. Find out how you can join the story at PleasureTownShow.com. Thanks for tuning in, Pleasure Town listeners. Now go after your happy.